I don't think you will ever have a guest on your show who likes technology more than me. All the entrepreneurship I've done in my life has been tech-enabled, and I, I really think that building software is like a uniquely powerful way of changing the world because the power of software is limited only by the quality of your imagination. So it literally is imagination made tangible. Any other business has physical constraints, but software really doesn't. That's Eric Ries, author of The Lean Startup and now CEO of the Long-Term Stock Exchange, along with Alton McDowell, co-head of Technology and Disruptive Commerce at J.P. Morgan. This conversation was recorded during the 10th Annual Lean Startup Conference this past October in San Francisco. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to J.P. Morgan Tech Trends. My name is Alton McDowell. I am the co-head of uh, what we call Technology and Disruptive Commerce at J.P. Morgan in our commercial bank. This morning, I'm excited to have a very important person on our stage, Eric Ries, who uh, founder of the Lean Startup Way, and also my recent book uh, that I'm reading, The Startup Way itself. Eric, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Why don't we just dive right into some questions? What is the Lean Startup Way movement, and kind of how did it get started? Sure. So. The short version is that the Lean Startup is an uh, application of a number of previous theories like lean manufacturing, customer development, agile, you know, DevOps, design thinking, like elements from those theories, but applied to the process of innovation itself. And it started out out of a lot of failure. And not just mine, but I'll just tell you about mine because mm-hmm. that's the one I know the best. I really believed that if you had great technology and a good idea and you were in the right place at the right time, then you would be successful as an entrepreneur because that's how it happens in the movies Mm -hmm. and in the case studies and in magazines. And it's like step one, have great idea, young people in garage with great technology. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, on cover of magazines. Are you familiar with that? (laughs) And I wasn't really very clear about step two, but it just seemed like everyone was doing it. I I got an entrepreneurship during the dot-com bubble, so I mean, really everybody was doing it. And I kept having the experience over and over again of doing everything just like it says you're supposed to do, following the management best practices, doing everything right, and then having the result be colossal failure. And I couldn't really understand why, other than just kind of the fundamental unfairness of the universe. For whatever reason, as I started to go through this experience over and over again, my attitude was each time I go through this process, let me at least try to make some new mistakes this time and not just do the same thing over and over again. And so I, and obviously with the help of a number of other entrepreneurs and and thinkers, started to develop a playbook of different approaches to solving that problem that at first just seemed intuitively right to me. So for example, uh, having customers be involved in product development far earlier than was considered normal at the time, uh, using a scientific decision-making framework for evaluating if the product is getting better or worse, which, I mean, can you believe that was controversial at one time? And then focusing on not the quality and perfection of the final product, but rather the speed of iteration and rate of improvement over time. And from that, those kind of basic insights, we have concepts like the minimum viable product, like Steve Blank's customer development, the build, measure, learn feedback loop, and then most famously or infamously the idea that um, if the strategy is not working, but you want to stay true to the vision, you should pivot a change in strategy without a change in vision. So that all happened around the time of the financial crisis um, in 2008 and 9. I started writing about it. 
it became this, this phenomenon. And uh, I've actually wrote a book called Lean Startup in 2011. And then it completely took over my life. <laughs> it's not exactly what I thought I'd be doing from a career point of view, but here we are. But what's interesting is when I think about even just at JP Morgan, we have a very similar mindset in terms of now iterate quickly on ideas and whether it's agile technology and thinking through here's what clients want, come up with ideas, solutions quicker. Don't take 10 years because <laughs> guess what? By the time the 10 years are well, over, exactly. something else is out there and people want. So we have a very similar mindset, which is what I think when I was reading the book, it really did resonate with me on oh, how that's we great. think about it. At the I mean, that really is the modern way yeah. of business. And I think every company will be organized that way eventually. Oh, that is exciting. When you think about the conference and talking to people, and if you're at the beginning of your journey yeah. of, a, of, a, of a founder and your startup, what is the advice you give them? It's funny, when people come to me for advice, they usually think that I'm gonna to talk to them about metrics and iteration. I think it's because of the selection bias of people who come to talk to me. That's actually not usually the issue. The, actually, the issue is more likely to be a vision issue. So the most common advice I wind up giving people is that if you don't have a truly passionate vision about what you want to accomplish, you literally can't pivot. It's like doing science with no hypothesis. If I walk into a chemistry lab and I just like grab a vial of this and a beaker of that and start like throwing them against the wall and see what happens, some stuff's gonna happen. <laughs> but is that science? Is that, would you call that chemistry? No, that's just throwing stuff against the wall. And so usually what happens is the people are naturally bifurcate along the like line of either like customers don't know what they want and I am the visionary auteur, you know, who whatever, and I'm gonna tell customers how it is and it's gonna work out great. And I'm always like, hey, if that works for you, God bless. Hasn't been great for me. I don't necessarily recommend that. But then you also have people who are like technology in search of a problem. So like they're passionate about some piece of technology or they had some kind of insight or they, they just, they wanna make money. They're like, I'd like to have a career making money, making something. And that's not a good way to get into entrepreneurship either because you can't formulate hypotheses worth testing. You know, if you know physics, you could have tremendous acceleration by running around in a circle. So that's, that's not good. We wanna have some idea of where we're going. The other problem is entrepreneurship is a hard, long slog. When you read about an entrepreneur who was an overnight success, it's usually a, an overnight success 10 years in the making. So it was a very long night. What do you do if you're working on something you don't really care about? If it fails, that's a blessing. The curse is it works, and now you have to keep working on it for a long time, and you don't even care about what it is. Like that, that's actually much more painful and much worse. I know many of you don't feel that way, right? Like well, I, I would be happy to have that pain, but like it actually, it's very, very, very unpleasant. So you may as well pick something you really care about. You may as well pick something that you have a lot of vision around, both for moral reasons and emotional reasons, but also for efficiency reasons. Your experiments will be way better designed your rate of iteration will be much faster if you have some concrete idea of what is supposed to happen because now you can compare the results to your expectations and pivot more quickly. Now, that's a very good point. And it's funny, as you say, and I'm thinking here at JP Morgan, how we think about things that we have this tagline, helping companies look around the corner. I like that. Yeah, the iteration of a process is hard. We think about how do we help those founders, those entrepreneurs, those companies. Again, you're going to go through those challenges, but how do we help that make that journey a little bit easier or at least give people insight to think about it? I mean, that's rare. Most entrepreneurs are very lonely yeah. and your partners don't actually help you yeah. that often. So that's, that would be, that's, yeah. that's something good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thinking about technology, and obviously this is a, a JP Morgan tech trends, and 
we think about technology and how it helps with, with companies, and we have a lot of technology that we kind of created for consumers, whether I think about real-time payments, um, even on the podcast, we help clients think about cybersecurity, which is obviously a big, a big issue. What do you tell entrepreneurs about technology, how they should think about it, how they should use it? I think you do a good job of the book talking about using it to come up with your MVP and testing. So yeah. if you can drill down into that a little bit. I don't think you will ever have a guest on your show who likes technology more than me. <laughs> you have a, a stereotype in your mind of the kid who was in their parents' basement programming computers, and that's all they wanted to do, and they didn't get enough sunlight and socialization. Hi, that's me. <laughs> I, well, the first time my father brought home a beige IBM PC XT, for those that remember, with a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, and put it in our basement, and like from the day that that monolith showed up in my life, all I wanted to do was learn how to control it and program it. I really am uh, that kind of person. All the entrepreneurship I've done in my life has been tech-enabled, and I, I really think that building software is like a uniquely powerful way of changing the world because the power of software is limited only by the quality of your imagination. So it literally is imagination made tangible. Any other business has physical constraints, but software really doesn't. That's a rare thing. And especially now, we live in, a, in an era where the tooling is unbelievable, so the the leverage that an individual person can have with technology compared to any other time in history is just truly surreal. Even though I love technology more than anyone, I, I would say that the path to innovation and to breakthroughs is usually not through technology itself. It's usually the application of technology to some problem domain that's been historically unserved, and it requires some level of insight about the underlying thing you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So like when we're talking to larger companies who, are wanna, who wanna transform and get into digital, I get called in to tell, talk to them about digital transformation, and because I'm the nerdy Silicon Valley guy, I think they're kinda coming expecting me to be like, if you Bitcoin and drone a little more, you know, you'll have digital transformation. And of course, my message is, management transformation precedes digital transformation, or it doesn't work. I wish it wasn't so. Learning how to manage a software project is not like managing other things. It's very difficult, and it goes off the rails very quickly, and I, I've been really pondering why. I think it's because if you are not a technologist yourself, you're just too vulnerable to being sold snake oil. Because most technology is, as the famous saying goes, indistinguishable from magic, but the converse is not true. Things that, are, things that seem like magic are not, next, not necessarily a sound technological breakthrough. So the number one most important thing is if you want to be technology enabled, you have to commit yourself to understand technology and how it works. I strongly recommend entrepreneurs who want to be software entrepreneurs to learn how to write software. It's not that hard. It's easy for me to say, I know, but like if you can use an Excel spreadsheet, you can write a computer program, and there's like 42 boot camps for teaching normal people software that were started this morning. It's highly accessible. And the reason that's important is imagine I was an MBA, I graduated from my MBA program, and I'm like, I'm gonna be a manager of a factory. And you're like, excellent. Step one of being a manager of a factory is probably gonna be to walk the factory floor. And you're like, no, no, I have a phobia of, of heavy machinery. It, that stuff, that loud noises, the clanging, it makes me intimidated. So I would like to manage factories, but I don't ever want to go to a factory. Those people exist, we've all met them. Are they successful at managing factories? No, they are not. The, you can't walk the factory floor of software unless you can write code. So it's not, you don't have to be the world's greatest programmer, but when a programmer starts giving you mumbo jumbo about what is and is not possible, you can't fall for the solar flares defense. You know, I, I, software is late because of solar flares. You have to be able to say like, I don't think that is likely. No, I don't, I don't believe you. If you can't say that, then you're, you're sunk. You may as, well, right. may as well give up. Very good point. At JP Morgan, we talked to companies and especially entrepreneurs about kind of the moments that mattered, which is also akin to you discussing in the book, the pivot point. Yeah. Um, and I think about that in our business and there are pivot points where we say, 
let's create this product or this product we created, maybe it doesn't have the right fit, let's now iterate on a solution. Yeah. Can you kind of tell me, when you think about your journey, what your pivot points were? Oh, personally? Personally. Sure, I don't know how far back you want to go. I discovered the internet by accident when I was probably 12. I was on the BBS scene, for those who know what that was. And one day, a friend of mine calls me up and he says, uh, go to your modem and dial this phone number. Sure, you know, remember that sound it used to make when it would connect? <laughs> now, all I cared about was using computers to play games at that time. And normally when you logged into the thing, having some graphic thing would show up, it just logged me into a prompt. It was like, you know, gibberish, colon, blinking cursor. And he's like, type the following. Telnet, and he gave me an I, what I now know as would be an IP address. And then something magical happened. He logged me into what's called a multi-user dungeon, a MUD. Now I'm really dating myself. Text-based RPG adventure that could have 50 players playing it simultaneously, which was like a revelation to me. So my introduction to the internet was actually that it could allow you to do magic, like the real thing. Because the way these programs were written is you play the game and you'd level up and you'd be like a character. And then uh, if you got to the maximum level, you could ascend, you could, you could relinquish your mortal body and become an actual wizard, which is the people who program the game. And I was like, you think, you think we have ethical rules in our society? You should have seen the ethical rules required for like the behavior of wizards and muds in the band. Like this was like a serious thing. You're giving up something you really invest a lot in. And that was an incredible way to learn programming because if you can type the scroll of the correct incantation, a physical object will appear in your hand and you can control its behavior. So that was very important. So discovering the internet and the power that it would have, you know, that was, that was a very transformative thing for me. I didn't expect to become an entrepreneur. If you've seen the movie, The Social Network, I had the first half of the movie, The Social Network experience. Fortunately, not the second half part where we make any money and sue each other. But my friends and I were in an Ivy League university during the dot-com bubble and had the idea that we should drop out of school, create a website where students from those schools could create online profiles for the purpose of sharing, which did turn out to be kind of a good idea, like some <laughs> years later. But we had the wrong idea. We had the idea that they would create those profiles and use them to share with employers to get jobs. We built a recruiting. We had no idea about entrepreneurship. And the best thing that ever happened to me in retrospect is that the dot-com bubble popped shortly thereafter. And so I was only away from school for a short time before I could go back and finish my degree. And that was a very transformative experience because in the movies, this never happens. In the movie, the most satisfying part of these movies is the person who told you it would never work and you shouldn't do it in act one. The plucky protagonist is like, what do you know, old man? I'm gonna go off and do my adventure. And then at the end, they come back and you're like, you were wrong, I was right, and I'm a champion, and you're right. That's very sat psychologically satisfying. I want you to actually imagine the experience of going back to someone and saying, actually, you were right. Just like you said, it didn't work out and I'm going back to school to finish my degree. It's not a good feeling. But did you, did you view that experience as, as you kind of say in your book, the information that- No, <laughs> no, I was totally devastated. And I, was, I, I thought I was a horrific failure and I was really upset. And it took me a lot of years later did I realize what a good learning experience it was and how, much that, how formative that was and how much it, it was a gift that it set me up for so many good things later. So here's a funny tidbit. I don't know if I've told this story before. I went through that experience. I finished my degree. I applied for jobs. I applied for jobs in Boston, New York, the Bay Area, and Seattle. 
When I went to interview in Boston with a technology company, I got asked this question. The person said, okay, I see that you have this failure on your resume. What mistakes did you make at the level of strategy in this company? And I realized as he was asking me this question, I didn't understand the question. I actually did not know what the word strategy meant. And I'm trying to answer his question. I'm like, well, we did this wrong. And he's like, but, but at the level of strategy, what mistake did you make? And I'm like, man, I don't know what, this guy, what does this guy want? And it was just like a total disaster. In New York, um, people just didn't care. The fact that I had this failure was irrelevant. In Seattle, I was work talking to ex-Microsoft people. They liked the technology part of my story. And the fact that the, I'd done the startup was like neither here nor there. But in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, the fact that I'd done this failed startup was like the defining thing on my resume. And everyone viewed it as an unequivocally positive development. They were like so excited to hear me talk all about how we messed everything up. And, and I was like, why? And they said, because you got these great learnings on somebody else's dime. Someone else paid for your education, not me. So you're not gonna make those same mistakes again when you come work for me. So like it's a very different culture of understanding what had happened. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, so I, I wonder sometimes if I had moved to a different ecosystem even, would I have been able to have the, to have, extract the lessons that turned out to be really useful uh, from that failure. Interesting, and <clears throat> just pressing a point, um, I have a company, I have an idea, I'm in a marketplace, I come up with a, what I think, I do all of my work, MVP, yeah. all of a sudden someone has a very similar product. What's gonna happen? <clears throat> How do I continue to stay innovative and differentiate in that type of marketplace? The thing you gotta understand is startups, co competitors don't put startups out of business, startups put themselves out of business. So you have to stay focused on yourself and not get distracted by what your so-called competitors are doing. And every company that I have been involved in, like every like venture-backed startup that I've done, at least three times a year, there'll be like a board meeting where someone's like, did you see this hot new thing that got funded to compete with you? And what are you gonna do about it? And the only correct answer is nothing. What, can you, like, what are you gonna do about it? There's nothing to do. Probably that company, their press release of how great they are is just a bunch of BS vanity metrics anyway. So like a lot of those companies go out of business before they ever even launch a product. You gotta tune the noise out, but it's very difficult because we're copiers by nature and we wanna copy from them. And like when a bunch of venture-backed startups who have no profits and customers and traction are all copying from each other, it's really, it's truly the blind leading the blind. You gotta tune it out. And sometimes the fear of competitors prevents entrepreneurs from actually testing their ideas. This is what's dangerous. So I have an exercise. Have you ever had this fear that like a big company is gonna steal your idea if you reveal it to the world? Here's an exercise for you. Take one of your ideas, you have a backlog of ideas that you've always wanted to do. Don't have to take number one, but like pull number 17 from the list or just pick one on the list. And your assignment, should you choose to accept it, is to find the relevant product manager at the relevant big company and try to get them to steal your idea. Like beg them to steal your idea, please, and you will cure yourself of the fear that big companies are gonna steal your idea. Because first of all, they already had that idea, okay? It's not that good of an idea. That's not the reason they didn't copy it. It's all the other problems. And now having worked with a lot of big companies, I can assure you that that is not the concern. Just gotta not worry about it. And yet, sometimes the other startup wins and you lose. It happens. There's a wonderful set of interviews someone did with all the other social networks that had launched before Facebook, talking to those founders about what it was like watching Facebook just destroy their business as it was happening. They're kind of heartwarming and kind of sad, crushingly sad at the same time stories. While it was happening, they couldn't understand what was going on. They were just getting demolished. But now that you know the, an the correct answer, now that you know what made Facebook great and their product bad, you can be like, well, yeah, because your product sucked and their product was better. And like, there's one guy I remember, he launched his startup 
at like 20 college campuses simultaneously when Facebook launched only at Harvard. And he had a big head start, and his product had like 100 features, and Facebook only had poke. So you can imagine how confident he was that he had the right strategy and Facebook had the wrong strategy. And now it's funny because we all know that that's not right. But at, you know, like when that happens to you, just suck it up, do the next thing. It's OK. In the book, uh, The Startup Way, you kind of talk about companies now taking more of an entrepreneurial type of perspective in terms of driving growth, driving yeah. value. Yeah. When I think about JP Morgan and how we really now have this entrepreneurial mindset of unleashing kind of creativity and yeah. there are no sacred cows and whatever you did in one way doesn't necessarily mean you do it in the other way. I mean, we're doing a podcast. That's an interesting change when you think about JP it. Morgan himself never did a podcast. <laughs> no, he, he did not. You were at a company and we talked about this yesterday. How do you jumpstart that kind of entrepreneurial creativity when maybe inherently at your institution you don't have anyone who's listening. I mean, that is a, a, a huge problem in the world today because every company is going to work in this new way. So there's two choices. You can transform or be disrupted. I'm like a terrible consultant. People call me in, hey, come talk to the CEO. And, and I'm like, listen, I don't care personally. As a consumer, as an investor, as a citizen, what does it matter to me if you transform to this new way of working or you're replaced by someone who does? Either way, I'm fine. Imagine you were called in to talk to like a municipal cab company. Does it matter to me really if you make the transformation or Uber takes over your market share? Like as a consumer, as long as I can get trans, I can go where I want to go with a click of a button on my phone, like I'm fine. If we're in that situation and we want to make that change, how do we get started? The definition of a legacy company is that it has done things in the past that made it successful. So those things are unlikely to be the right things to do now. So you have a, a generation of employees and managers and leaders who've been trained in almost by definition, whatever it was, the wrong thing. We have to find a little pocket of entrepreneurial thinking in the company to start with. And ideally we have a senior leader with the vision and the enlightenment to say, we know we need something new, but you can't just mandate. Can you imagine to be like all 10,000 employees, all 100,000 employees, everyone think like an entrepreneur starting on Monday at nine o'clock. I'm going to put up slogans and posters. I mean, just that's ridiculous. That's not how it's going to work. But could we find like one division, one team, one place where we could pilot, test, experiment uh, with a different way of working? And then the other thing is that to really take it seriously. The Startup Way takes its name from a book called The Toyota Way, which is, uh, was about the mechanics of how Toyota has been able to do what it's been able to do for so many decades. And there's this like pyramid diagram of the foundation of the philosophy of long-term thinking, which gives rise to the process type improvements that they're able to run, the stuff that they're famous for, which gives rise to a certain kind of culture which allows them to attract a certain kind of people. And the interplay between the deep systems and the surface characteristics is a big part of my work. So even if once you get a few pilot teams thinking entrepreneurial way, it's still not enough to get the whole company thinking that way, there's a lot of the deep, deep work that's gonna be required, but we gotta kinda of take it in a step-by-step -step process. That's a very good point. Even I see it uh, at our firm, it's funny, sometimes I'm in the elevator bank and I may have a client meeting with a well-established client, so I have my suit on, and then my colleagues beside me are in their jeans, in their all birds. <laughs> it is interesting when I think about how we as an institution just transform to much more of that kind of startup mentality. Do you, have you found that the company like makes reference to some period in its history or from like, where do you guys take inspiration from like making that transformation or what you want to do? Yeah, you know, I think it's a couple of places I would say I would 
start at the top, I think with Jamie. Uh, I think he sets the tone that old way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. Mm -hmm. And if you know your clients and you really serve your clients and you know them well, I feel like back to that MVP analysis, I'm constantly iterating on what do you need and what products and services make sense. Yeah. When I think about things like we created for the gig economy, like real-time payments, people don't want to take five to 10, in 10 hours to get paid. They want it in five seconds because that's how you operate in your real life. And so we've started to incorporate a lot of that into our products for clients and companies or how we actually connect with clients in my group in, in technology and disruptive commerce. There is a reason that if I'm an entrepreneur sitting in Austin, Texas, I don't have the benefit or the great learnings for another company we cover sitting in Silicon Valley or Boston or New York. So I love this notion that what technology allows us to do is really shrink the lines of communication and make it one step. Yeah, that's cool. So that, that makes it really fun and interesting. Um, one other point I, I want to ask, what do you think about this, the humanization of work? Is that kind of going to be not only a baseline, but the expectation for people? I know we think about it at J.P. Morgan, whether it's our city's initiatives, we do a lot with Detroit, and how we think about making sure people who, even if you had a prison record, second chances, let's ban the box. We're, we're yeah. very focused on that. How is that trend coming, and what do you think how that will play out? I think this is still very much underappreciated uh, in elite circles, that there's, there's a wholesale revolution going on in just what are the jobs that human beings are going to do in the future? And what be the bill of rights of being an employee of an organization? Like, what, do, what is our expectation going to be? I mean, if you look at what defines being a 21st century company, like, clearly one of the things in kind of the corporate governance world, you know, I'm putting on my LTSE hat for a second, we talk about multi-stakeholder engagement, like, it's a very fancy word. But what it really means is actually caring about not just your shareholders, but your employees, your communities, your customers, your vendors, and, like, their well-being there are not going to be boring and routine jobs anymore because anything that is routine, computers are better at than humans. Toll booth takers, elevator operators, but also like a lot of what we now consider to be white collar work is going away because computers are better at it. When Lee Sedol lost that match to AlphaGo, okay, like that was a big deal for me. I don't know how much you guys follow that, but like if computers can, can play Go better than humans, then we're at a whole new level of understanding. And you look at now, like from that, that same team and that, that same technology, it's just now like previously unthinkable breakthroughs are coming now at a crazy rate. I mean, I studied what does anyone call machine learning, what we should call artificial intelligence in college. And I remember thinking, boy, I hope my kids or my grandkids one day will see this inevitable development. Those, we are way past all that stuff. If you have work that is fundamentally not creative in scope, it is not gonna be done by a human being and it's inefficient for that to happen, it's gonna be done by a computer. So that means all jobs will be knowledge work jobs or they'll be make work jobs. Like, it'll be like prison labor and then like computer programming. What will it look like? It's gonna look like companies where the people who provide that knowledge work have unbelievable leverage over what happens. And that means we could build a more humanistic work culture where uh, values orientation and kind of doing the right thing and treating everybody with respect are considered sources of strategic advantage as much as moral imperatives. And I think we're starting to see that. I think you start to see like a little bit of glimmers of that in this next generation of companies and their leaders. And I would expect we're going to see a lot more of it uh, in the near future. One question, it was in the book, which I wanted you to talk a little bit about as an accounting finance person. Uh, oh, sure. A little bit of an accounting geek. 
Talk about innovation accounting. I find I found that to be fascinating. Oh, thank you. That is not something I get asked about very often, yeah. so I'm, del I, I'm delighted to talk about it. And uh, you almost made the same clip up I used to make. You call it innovative accounting, you get in trouble. That's what you go to prison for. <laughs> so it's a bit of a dangerous term. So exactly. yeah, innovation accounting. So here's the problem. I have seen this exact same negotiation happen in three very different contexts. It can happen, like if you're a venture-backed entrepreneur talking to a VC, you can be a corporate entrepreneur talking to your CFO, or you could be a garage entrepreneur talking to your spouse. And it's like, honey, CFO, VC, have I got a deal for you. <laughs> if you give me our whole life savings, or uh, $10 million, and 18 months, or, or year, give me a year and our whole life savings, I promise you the most unbelievable results. We're gonna have millions of customers, we're gonna make billions of dollars, I'm gonna be on the cover of magazines, it's gonna be so great. And we all know that the like, sense of momentum and political capital of a new venture is never quite so high as the day after it's funded. And it monotonically decreases from there. You get the money. Now let's magically fast forward 12 months. What do we know for sure is true? I guarantee all the money has been spent. Right on schedule. And one of the entrepreneurial superpowers is spending other people's money. Okay, number two, I guarantee that everyone involved has been very busy this whole time. A lot of milestones have come and gone, and another entrepreneurial superpower is keeping people very busy. So we definitely did that. If we're being really honest with ourselves, do we have millions of customers and billions of dollars in revenue? Are we on the cover of magazines? Okay, probably not. I remember talking to a VC once, and I showed them this beautiful hockey stick-shaped graph of our results. And they were like, this is incredible. What are the units on this graph? Is this in thousands or tens of thousands? And I'm like, oh, no. No, sir. Uh, this is in ones. <laughs> These are the actuals. <laughs> and he's like, you have $7,000 in revenue total? And I'm like, yeah, but it has the hockey ship curve, hockey stick shaped curve. So look. And he was just like, are you, you asking me for how much money on the what with the ones? <laughs> like, honey. Uh, so remember when I said we'd be on the cover of magazines and have billions of dollars in revenue? Like, CFO, uh, we didn't exactly hit our accountability target. And he's like, okay, what, did you miss by 10%? It's like, no, we missed by three orders of magnitude. We have 125 <laughs> customers instead of 125,000 customers. He's like, 125, I, in my sheet here, it says you would have 125 million customers. You're like, I, I don't remember saying that. It's funny because what does every entrepreneur say in this situation? I know we didn't hit the target, but we learned so much. And if you just give us like another year and even more money, I promise you, and it's funny because you're fired. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have the power of spending other people's money, they wanna know what did I get for my money? What was the ROI? If you're a corporate CFO, someone usually gets fired for missing by 10%, you missed by an infinity percent, you're fired. And yet we know that great innovation is gonna have this flat part of the hockey stick. Like what people forget is that if you wanna have hockey stick shaped growth, the most important defining characteristic of the shape is the long flat part, when ROI is negative by definition. So when, we, when entrepreneurs get together privately, we love to complain about the vulture capitalists and the CFO gray suited blah, blah, blah dudes who don't understand, who are constantly canceling innovation right before it was about to turn the corner. You know what I'm saying? Any of you had those kind of, yeah. But like, look at it from the finance person's point of view. If you're a corporate CFO, and somebody says, give me a million dollars, and then a month, and then a year later, they have nothing to show for it. Possibility A, they are in fact learned on, the, on the brink of a breakthrough and learn great things. Possibility two, 
they're Bozo the Clown, and they set the money on fire and have been sitting on a beach doing nothing the whole time. By the metrics of conventional finance, those two situations would be indistinguishable. I would call that total paradigm breakdown for the metrics of conventional accounting. We can't tell the difference between the next Facebook and the next everything else book. So innovation accounting is a financial discipline for evaluating the leading indicators of future success. It's super boring. I'm sorry. People come to a lecture about entrepreneurship, and I start talking about accounting, and they're just like, whoa, oh my god, I know. I don't get a lot of fan mail about innovation accounting, believe me. But it's critically important because the only way to sustain vision over time is to be able to sustain the resource of investment over time, and that means being able to show progress. But just there is a math now. We, we do have the mechanic. When someone says they learn something valuable, we can prove it. And we can show in net present value terms the impact of the things that we're learning at the MVP stage. And we can go MVP by MVP and show that cohort by cohort, we're making progress against a really macro goal. And it's a super powerful technique, not just for CFOs and VCs, but for entrepreneurs themselves, because the most important stakeholder, the most important person you need to convince that you're making progress is yourself. Self-delusion is the, really the fatal problem. So this is a way to, to penetrate that fog every once in a while. I was gonna say why it resonated with me so much is because when I think about what we do at JP Morgan and, and how do you stay close to that consumer and that client, and right, sometimes the ideas and the solutions will be in that flat part of that, that hockey stick before you see the innovation. Yeah. Back to your point, if we truth to the vision and we absolutely believe it helps the client, we have the latitude to be, be able to persevere on that hockey stick and kind of wait to get the, uh, to get the investment. You have to do it. Yeah. I'll tell you one funny story from one of your competitor institutions. This is back in a pre-Stripe era. I was doing a startup where, in the, before Stripe and stuff, when you, when you wanted to do credit card processing online, it was a very extensive application process that was required to get permission for the privilege of taking credit card payments. And I remember um, they had like this checklist of things they had to certify. And in those days, they had to come visit your office to make sure that you were a legitimate company. They sent someone to our office and we failed the checklist, and we were like, what's the problem? They said, well, it says here, number, item number 729, you have to have a sign on your door that says the name of your company, and you don't, so you failed. So we had to reapply, and they came back, and we literally took a piece of paper and wrote the name of our company and taped it to the window, <laughs> and they were like, Box Check. checked, <laughs> and they went, and we passed the thing, and I was like, oh my God, talk about having the wrong metrics of success. It's like classic, you know, some guy made some checklist somewhere, and the person doing the check, they have no say about what the checklist, their job is just to make sure that the box is, in fact, was checked. And so, yeah, if you want to evaluate startups, you really have to develop a, a competency around that. Well, with that, Eric, I want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, to answer a couple of questions, and we appreciate you uh, attending the uh, JP Morgan Tech Trends. Oh, podcast. thank you, my brother. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mark. Very appreciate much. It. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us.